In your Bibles tonight, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5 tonight. If you are, are not familiar, we have been working our way through the Beatitudes of Christ, which is the first part of Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And it's recorded for us, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And if you have a red-letter Bible... Beginning at Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, you see nothing but red letters. Christ was preaching one message, and he went through it without uh, any interruptions. And it was one of the greatest messages the world has ever heard. And we're just dealing with the first portion of it, the introductory matter of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, as we've been looking for the last several weeks now at the Beatitudes of Christ in Matthew chapter 5. And Tonight we're going to be looking at verse number 8 as we've been working our way one at a time and looking at a message that I've titled, Having a Pure Heart or the Pure in Heart. Matthew chapter 5 and in a moment we'll look at verse number 8. The greatest preacher the world has ever seen knew exactly how to address people where they needed it the most. No one ever went away from hearing a message from Jesus without being convicted in some way. There wasn't a single individual who heard Christ speak and that was left thinking that Christ didn't teach them or tell them anything that they hadn't heard already. Christ had a way of exposing everyone's problems and doing it in such a manner where people were forced to make some sort of serious reforms. Christ was less concerned with the outward and the, the, the moral reformation as he was with dealing with the source of all evil. And Jesus knew that outward reform, outward moral reform, was really only a band-aid because it would never really last and only covered the surface of the problem that stemmed something much deeper. And Jesus sought to cleanse that. He sought to cleanse the, the spring from which all sinful thoughts and all sinful words and actions came from because he knew that was the true way to bring true and lasting reform to the life of an individual. Until a person's heart is pure, his life will never be clean. There may be some temporary fixes that he puts into place, but ultimately nothing will last, nothing will truly set forth until the heart deep inside of the individual is cleansed. Eventually, a true person's nature will always reveal itself. I don't care how good you are at hiding and keeping something concealed deep down in the depths and the deepest recesses of your, of your soul, eventually it's going to come out. Your true nature is going to show itself in some way. And Jesus sought to deal with that issue and to show individuals how they could truly have a pure heart. He taught in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45. I want you to listen to what he says here because he points out just the reality of how a person's true nature is eventually going to reveal itself. In Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 45, the Bible says, For a good tree bringeth, bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. For every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns, uh, for of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. Even if you're able to keep it hidden, even for a little while, the true nature of your heart is going to eventually reveal itself. With each of the Beatitudes that we've looked at here so far, 
Christ is dealing with man's inner nature, not just the outward changes that we can make, but the inner nature. As we've previously stated, the Beatitudes do not show us how a person is to be saved. The Beatitudes show us how a person who is saved should be acting, what they should look like. And Christ is showing us that the saved person has a clean heart, and this clean heart should demonstrate the following characteristics, the following qualities. It should demonstrate a person who is poor in spirit, someone who is mourning over that poverty, someone who is meek and humble, someone who is hungering and thirsting to be filled by more of God, someone who is demonstrating mercy. The beatitude that hits the center of the target is the one that we're focusing our attention on here this evening. And notice what the Bible says here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now notice that Jesus didn't say, blessed are the pure in speech, or blessed are the pure in action, or blessed are the pure in behavior, but blessed are the pure in heart. Now all those things that I mentioned, uh, pure in speech and action and behavior, all of those things are outward. And Jesus is concerned with the outward uh, with the outward uh, actions of us, but he's more concerned with that which is inward. All of those outward things could be summed up in a single word, and we know that word as religion. We, we, we have a lot of religious people who are concerned with the outward expressions, the outward observances, the traditions that they're going to follow. And Christ is less concerned with religious things as he is with personal, deep things of the heart. And that the message of Jesus Christ is very plain and simple, as stated in John chapter 3 and verse number 7, where he said, ye must be born again. It's as simple as that. Ye must be born again. I don't care how often you attend church. I don't care how long you've been a member at that church. I don't care how you're involved with all the different things, whether it's VBS or Fall Fest or the Easter egg hunt or whatever the church has going on. I don't care if you have a hand in everything. If you're not born again, he says, you're on your way to hell. You can be the most religious person there is, but if you do not have that inward change that you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal savior, it all means nothing. The idea being that, again, a person's inner nature must be completely renewed by God or else they're never going to enter, let alone even see the kingdom of God. Even if your actions seem to be pure, even if the motive behind those actions uh, seems to be good, eventually it's going to show where your true nature rests. How many of you have ever done the right thing for the wrong reasons? Right? You're told to do something, you don't want to do it, but you do it anyways and you do it for the wrong reasons or you do something as a way to kind of get even with somebody. There's all sorts of different motivations that we have sometimes when we're doing the right thing. Even if your language is clean and even if it's pleasant, the nature of your heart may be full of all sorts of vile and foul imaginations as you're doing the right thing. How many of you have said the right thing while thinking evil thoughts? Sometimes we'll shake someone's hand and we'll congratulate them. And in our minds, we're thinking, this should be me. Now, we don't verbalize that. But we'll shake their hand. We'll say, I'm so happy and thrilled for you. On the inside, we're thinking, I wish you were dead. And that may be a little harsh. But sometimes we, we think that. 
Because maybe it was something that, that we were hoping to get. Maybe it was a promotion that we were gunning for and they got it over us. And we have to put on the brave face. We have to show them that we're happy about it, even though on the inside we're screaming and yelling that we didn't get chosen for whatever it was that they got. And we're saying the right thing, but we're thinking evil thoughts. Each of us will stand before God one day and every one of us are going to be judged uh, according, and not just according to our works, but also the Bible says according to our thoughts, according to our desires, which is a really scary thing to think about. Sometimes we get carried away because we don't think too much about God knowing our hearts. For it's easy to convince others by just our words and our actions. Then we, we almost think that, you know, we can kind of pull the wool over God's eyes and convince him by our actions and not really reveal to him what are, the true nature of our heart is really saying. But then we get cut down to our, to our knees when the Bible reminds us in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, where it says, for man looketh on the outward appearance, which that can easily be, you know, we can convince people easily. But it says, the Lord looketh on the heart. So while you may be able to fool everyone else around you, God says, the one person you're never fooling is the one person that you're going to be accountable to one day. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. It also helps to remind us that the promised blessing from Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 8 here is only for those who are made pure in heart. Again, it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And as we begin looking at what it is to have a pure heart, I want you to notice, first of all, that an impure heart leads to spiritual blindness. An impure heart leads to spiritual blindness. Again, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. One of the effects of drinking alcohol is impaired vision. Now, I'm not speaking from experience. I've never even drank a drop of alcohol. But from what I've read, drinking alcohol can lead to distorted vision, even double vision. You can then understand how dangerous it would be for a drunk person to get behind the wheel of a car. But there are other things that can intoxicate a person. Other things that prevent us from having clear vision mentally and specifically spiritually. Take, for instance covetousness, the sin of covetousness. Covetousness is not being content with what you have. It is always wanting more. It is wanting what everyone else around you has. Covetousness quickly leads to spiritual blindness. The person who is covetous will rarely find any sort of delight in generosity. They're the least generous people because they want everything for themselves and they never have enough. The person who is covetous will not be generous. In fact, the covetous person thinks of the generous person as an absolute fool for how quick he is to give away what he has, even if what the generous person is doing is giving away to those that are in need. The covetous person is thinking, are you out of your mind? You need to stockpile that for yourself. He thinks that the generous person is, is foolish. The covetous person admires that, that which he can easily grab a hold of. And the more of it that he can secure, the better he's pleased about himself. And unfortunately, he endeavors to get more at any cost, even if it involves cheating and dishonest gain. The way he sees it, even if he ends up oppressing those who are poor and needy, if it stands to benefit himself, he views it as an acceptable cost. It's interesting how clearly people can see, the things, uh, see things when they don't stand to lose anything at all. But if there is the opportunity to gain something, a person's eyes suddenly cannot see straight when their heart is impure. The pure in heart will be able to see straight. But those who are blinded by covetousness 
will not be able to see what is right in front of their eyes. Take another sin. Look at the sin of oppression. There are some people in positions of authority that God created them, or who think that God created them to be the glory and the honor of the world. They are God's gift to humanity. This is how they view themselves. Some of these people also think that God created people to be poor for the purpose of those that are in positions of nobility and high positions, for them to be sustained in their exalted positions and gather as much wealth as possible. And when the poor people want more money for the services that they're doing, those that are in higher authority discourage such thinking and insist that the poor should continue to eke out some meager living with the few pennies they end up earning and stop complaining about the wages that they're receiving. And many of these in higher up positions look at it as if there is some set political, uh, there's some laws of, of uh, set laws of political economy that governs all these cases and it doesn't matter, we shouldn't bother arguing about it, but just accept that our lot in life is to always be poor. When this mindset is adopted, the oppressor, the one who's on the top of the food chain, never views his oppression of those who are beneath him as something that is evil. He just views that this is what God has done for himself. He's put him in this position, so it's his lot to do this and to treat others this way. Even if you point out to him an injustice that is clear as day, he cannot see it because he is living under the delusion that he was sent into the world to be at the top of the socioeconomic ladder. God chose him to be a somebody, and he chose others to be nobodies. It really wasn't up to him. This is what God preordained to be. And in this way, if oppression gets into a person's heart, it completely blinds him. It completely distorts him and the, uh, distorts the judgment of the oppressor. He cannot even see that what he's doing is actually wrong. He actually views oppression as something that would be appreciated if everyone understood what God has given him as far as his position. It's sad to see how spiritually blind some people get when they allow such evils into their heart. They can't see the truth that happens to be right there in front of their eyes. They will end up speaking out against God's word because God's word speaks out against them. They'll try to find loopholes in God's word to justify their actions or even their inactions and insist that everyone else must be wrong. Even when God's word clearly points out their sin, showing them the absolute guilt of their sin, they'll refuse to acknowledge it. These people would not be living the way they are if they could see themselves as God sees them. But their blinded eyes see only what they want to see. If they saw themselves through the lens of God, they would no longer be able to continue in their filthiness. They would no longer be able to go on oppressing and corrupting others. They would no longer treat others poorly, for they would see others for who they truly are. But as long as that sin gets into the heart, the eyes of these individuals are going to be blind forever. What about the, the sin of hypocrisy? There are plenty of people that will never see God, as it says here in verse number 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There are plenty of people that will never see God because they are living a lie. Have you ever told a lie so many times that you've actually forgotten what the real truth is? Anyone ever done that? Just me? Okay. All right, so you don't know what I'm talking about then. Let's just pretend that you've done this. The hypocrite tells so many lies that he wouldn't be able to see the truth even if he wanted to. It's been a lie his entire life, and he can't remember what's the, what's the actual truth. 
It's been so long that he's been telling one story that he can't even remember where it all began and, and where it went wrong. The hypocrite is so spiritually blind that he'll never be able to see himself as God sees him. There are many in the world today who claim to be Christians that are living an absolute lie. You don't believe me? Do some Googling yourself and find the statistics of how many people claim to be, um, claim to be Christians just here in America. And some of the numbers that you'll find are absolutely staggering. I saw one statistic that said that there are 80% of Americans that are claiming to be Christians. 80% of Americans claiming to be Christians. How many of you believe that? They claim it, sure, but how many of you believe that 80% of Americans are Christians, are absolute, God-fearing, believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior Christians? Probably not, right? Look around. We wouldn't have empty seats. We'd be having to build a new sanctuary and a whole new church if 80% of America was truly saved. If that were true, if, if 80% of America was saved, those numbers would almost certainly put the soul winner out of business. Behind eight of the ten doors that you would knock on would be a Bible-believing Christian. If those numbers were true, you'd be fighting for a spot in the parking lot. How many of you had trouble finding a spot in the parking lot tonight? I had no problem. The reality of it, for those of you who don't know, I, I walk. I live in the house right there, right across the parking lot, so I never have a problem finding a parking spot. But the reality of it is that there are many people who are satisfied telling others that they're a Christian without trusting in Christ and even living the life of a Christian. None of these people will receive the blessing of seeing God, let alone entering his kingdom. What about the sin of formalism? This is the, the outward appearance of being saved. This was the attitude and the religion of the Pharisees. These are the people who are more focused on giving off the appearance that they are a child of God, that they are saved without actually being a child of God. They know some key talking points. They, they know the words to some of the hymns and the Christian songs that we sing. They may even regularly attend church, but they have no substance even though they look good on the outside. Jesus condemned the scribes and the Pharisees for this. In Matthew 23 and verses 25 to 28, he said unto them, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. But within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within, you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Some people get so into formalism that they convince themselves that what they're actually doing is right and that it is good. 
It makes no difference how good and how favorable you appear on the outside if within you is an impure heart, a heart that hasn't trusted in Jesus as your Savior. These are the types of people who will read Scripture not for the purpose of learning from God, but to see what he can find to support his own views and his own opinions. If he doesn't find what he's looking for as he reads the Bible, he will twist the Bible to make it say what he wants it to say, or he'll suggest that certain passages need to be interpreted a different way than the normal interpretation would require. And this type of person looks to mold the Bible to any shape that he pleases so that he sees only the truth that he wants to see and avoids what he doesn't want to see. And the truth is that many believers will not see God as well as others because of some sin that stands in our way. And this often happens because of a questioning spirit that is constantly taking issue with the word of God and certain doctrines that we find in the word of God. There are many believers who will spend way, way, way too much time trying to find answers on some specific teaching in God's word, or they're trying to find something that no one else has noticed. Now, I'm never going to discourage someone from studying the Bible, but you have some people that devote their entire life to studying the Bible without actually studying the Bible. I've spoken to, to friends of mine who are believers who will ask me what I think about some new doctrine that is all the rage today. And there seems to be a new doctrine that's popping up almost every single day. And they'll ask me, hey, what are your thoughts on, on this doctrine? And they'll name it, and I'll say, I've never even heard of that. I have no idea what you're talking about. Please explain. Oh, you remember that one guy in the Old Testament who was this? And this is what they, someone came up with a doctrine based on his. Congratulations. Congratulations. Things in the Bible that were never intended to be doctrine have become a topic worth writing books about. Why? So that people can make some money. And having endless discussions about absolutely nothing when there are people that just need to hear the gospel. And here we are arguing about, well, is this a doctrine that we should follow? Or what about this? We just heard about this new doctrine. Well, what about the people that are outside the church that need to hear the gospel? And here we are arguing about absolute nonsense. By no means at all am I suggesting that studying the Bible isn't necessary, that it isn't important. And I want you to think that. But there are some things that we try to pull out of the Bible that just aren't there. And we're doing it for the sake of just trying to impress people and say, hey, guess what I just found? I've gotten rid of some books because the authors were devoting all their efforts to try and extracting something from the Bible that isn't, isn't there. In fact, I've got a book that's written just about that specific thing. It's called Exegetical Fallacies. It's all about how people have gone to do just that. Someone's written a book on people wasting time trying to find something in the Bible. How crazy is that? Most recently, I read something where someone made this fascinating discovery where each of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, each of those five books, they're referred to as the Torah. This man made this fascinating discovery that inside the first five books of the Bible, there is a secret message embedded in the original Hebrew language which God put there. I don't know why I read the article, because I, I remember thinking, this is just the most ridiculous thing. But I, I did. You know how, like, when you're driving past a car accident, you just, you don't want to look, but you have to look? It, it was like one of those things. I had to just read the article. And he said that the first letter of the first word in the first verse of the book of Genesis starts spelling the word Torah. 
Okay, so the first word in the very first verse of the book of Genesis is the word Bereshith, in the beginning. So you take the first letter of that verse, and that is the letter Tau, spelling the word Torah. Then from that point on, you count 50 letters, and the 50th letter is the letter O, and then the 50th letter after that is the R, and the 50th letter after that is the A, and the 50th letter after that is the H, and by the time you get to 200, 250 letters, you've spelled the word Torah. I wasted about an hour counting, counting in the English, counting in the Hebrew, looking at Leviticus, looking at Exodus, looking at Numbers, looking at Deuteronomy. Do you know that I found that he is absolutely lying? Why? What do you gain? Even if it's there, what do we gain? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. There is nothing that it adds to anything. And again, foolishly, for an hour, I kept trying to find this. I knew before I even read the article, there's nothing to this. And then I just got hooked. I kept on trying to figure out who would take the time to make something up like this. Who would do it? It's got to be there. But no matter how, many, how I count, and I, I tried going backwards, maybe it was 150 letters, so I, I just, it doesn't spell Torah, it doesn't spell it backwards, frontwards, sideways, to be honest, I don't even know why I spent the time trying to figure it out. Even if it was true, again, it changes nothing in the Bible. And this was what was so frustrating about the whole matter, because you have people who devote their entire lives to study the Bible without actually studying the Bible. I'm sure if I went into the Hebrew, I could find the, the proper numbers to figure out, okay, if you start here, and then if you count to the 37th letter, then, then there's, there's the O, and then the 47th letter, and then you get, you can probably figure out how to spell the word Torah. Eventually, you're going to get it. But what is it going to add? Nothing. I heard a story about a pastor who visited an elderly sick woman, and Wishing to leave her with an encouraging thought from God's word, the pastor opened up the woman's Bible and turned to a specific passage that he was going to read to her, and he found that she had marked this specific verse that he was going to read with the letter P. And so he's curious, and he said, well, what does the P mean, my sister? That means precious, sir. I found that text very precious to my soul, she said, on more than one special occasion. So he looked for another promise in the word of God. And next to another promise in the word of God, as he was flipping through the pages of scripture, he found another little note in the margin. But this time there was a letter T and a letter P. And he says, and what do these letters mean? She said, they mean tried and proved. For I tried that promise in my great distress and I proved it to be true. And then I put a mark next to it so that the next time I was in trouble, I might be sure that the promise was still true. The Bible is marked all throughout with T's and P's by generations of believers who have all tested the promises of God and proved them to be true. And I pray that we would be among those who also have tried and proved this precious book. An impure heart leads to spiritual blindness. But I want you to notice second that the pure heart, the pure heart can see God. The pure heart can see God. Blessed 
are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, what does it mean to see God? And let me explain by mentioning a few ways that we can see God. First, we can see God in nature. We can see God in nature. The pure in heart will see God in all the beauty of creation that surrounds him. They will see God's hand in the the stars that we see in the night sky, in the cool of the day, even in the middle of the storm, on top of a mountain, down in the valleys, everywhere they look, they'll see the hand of God. They recognize his handiwork. They're amazed at the beauty of what God has done and how he's spoken all of this into existence. So they'll see God in nature. Secondly, we, we see God in the Bible as well. There are plenty of people who are skeptical when they approach the Bible and they question every little thing that they read. They doubt the authority of God's word, especially when they come across something that they don't agree with. However, the pure in heart see God on every single page of Scripture. The more they read it, the more God reveals himself to them through his spirit and gives them the opportunity to enjoy more of his blessings. We see God in nature, we see God in the Bible, but we also see God in his church. We see God in his church. The impure in heart cannot see God in church at all. To them, the church of God is nothing more than a a group of people that are gathering together for the purpose of pointing out every one of ourselves' imperfections and faults and failures. To be fair, the unsaved are only going to see things according to their unsaved nature, but the pure in heart see God in the church and they rejoice to meet him as often as they come together with fellow believers. We see God in church. We also see God's true character. We see God's true character. Uh, Seeing God involves more than just seeing the signs of God, seeing the evidences of his power and presence in nature, in the Bible, in the church. Anyone who has been caught in a thunderstorm and hears the crash of thunder and sees the flash of lightning has to conclude that God is immensely powerful. If he is not foolish to be an atheist, he must conclude that God is absolutely unmatched in power and might. But to see God is eternally just and and, and compassionate uh, and that he is just and gracious. To see all those divine attributes blend together like almost like the colors of the rainbow. This is reserved only for those whose eyes first have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and, and anointed with a heavenly touch from the Holy Spirit. It is only the believer who who is pure in heart, who sees that God is always good, that in every instance, God is always perfect. And this person admires God in every aspect, seeing that all of the attributes of God are so perfectly blended and so perfectly balanced together that each one sheds more glory on the rest. And in that sense, the pure in heart, they will end up seeing God. For they're going to appreciate God. They're going to appreciate all the attributes of God that they catch a glimpse into his character. We also see God in our fellowship. We see God in our fellowship. There are many people who go through life and have no sense of anything spiritual. There are some people who are convinced that God doesn't exist because they've never seen him. They've never experienced him. When people tell me that they don't believe in God because they've never seen him or because they've never had any sort of spiritual experience before, I believe them. I absolutely believe them. Not that God doesn't exist, but I believe they think that God doesn't exist. But just because they didn't experience anything spiritual or or see God doesn't mean that other people haven't. That only proves that 
They weren't conscious of anything spiritual that was done around them because God was still working in their lives. There are plenty of people who can say that they've seen God and have had a spiritual experience where God's presence was felt. There are many people who have been moved to fall on their face and humbly plead to God and then were lifted up into joy and peace as a result of what God has done to them. Our experiences are as real as the very air that we're breathing into our lungs at this moment. And even though there are some people in the world that have never experienced such things, they're still as real. Many, if not all of us, could attest to the fact that fellowship with God here in this life is absolutely real. But that we only get to enjoy it when there's no sin standing between us and God. It's difficult to fellowship with God after you've allowed a bunch of filth and nonsense out of your mouth. It's difficult to fellowship with God after you've spent all sorts of time giving in to pleasures of sin and indulging the lusts of your flesh. The pure in heart, they do see God. They can see God, not necessarily with our natural eyes, but with our spiritual eyes. We see God and have the opportunity to fellowship with him as often as we like. So an impure heart leads to spiritual blindness. The pure in heart are the ones that see God. And third, the purifying work of the heart is all of God. The purifying work of the heart is all of God. He is the one that makes the heart pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Bible makes it crystal clear that every single one of us have sinned and none of us are good. However, there is a purifying work done within believers that is completely of God. This isn't something that is done through some sort of ceremony. Uh, it's not like you get baptized and you are washed on the outside and cleaned up on the inside as well. Baptism doesn't make your heart pure. No outward ceremony can make your heart pure. This isn't done through any sort of outward reformation. No work on the outside to bring about any change on the inside is possible. It is only done through the working of the Holy Spirit. And as we follow the teaching of Christ, it all starts with the Holy Spirit there in verse number three of Matthew chapter five, showing us our spiritual poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He then causes us to mourn over our undeserving and ill-deserving condition. Blessed are they that mourn. And as we realize how good our God has been to us, we cry out to him in meekness, desiring to follow as he leads. Blessed are the meek, verse number five says. When we used to run to do evil, God has given us a brand new desire, and our new desire is to run to God and to do that which is right and pleasing in his sight. Verse number six says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. And as we see the hand of God working in our lives, we seek that others may experience the same as well. And we read in verse number seven, Blessed are the merciful. And though we still struggle against our old nature, which we're all going to, we strive to live in purity and in holiness as we yearn to be more like our Savior every single day. Blessed are the pure in heart. When you're at this step of the ladder, as we've been comparing the Beatitudes to a ladder, going up one step at a time, you see God, you love God, you delight in God, you long to be like Him, and eagerly look forward to the day when you will be with Him and see Him face to face. God is able to work this change in you, but you must be willing to have him do the work. If you truly desire a pure heart, God will graciously give it to you. David prayed for this in Psalm 51. 
Psalm 51, verse 10, probably a familiar verse after his sin with Bathsheba as he throws himself at the mercy of God and confessing his sin to God. In verse number 10, he cries out for this purity, for this cleanliness to be done. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The Holy Spirit can do the necessary work of purification in our heart. We just have to humbly come before him in sincerity. God can change your nature. He can change your desires. You just have to be willing to let him do the work. A lot of us talk a big game, but when push comes to shove, we don't allow the Holy Spirit to get to work. We say that we want to. We'll make the claim, but don't allow it to actually get done. Even though we claim to want a pure heart, what we really want is for things to stay the same, but we want others to think that we want things to get better. We're not ready to let go of old habits. So even though the Holy Spirit is there, ready to do the work, He's got his gloves on. He's ready to do what needs to be done. It's as if we've put some handcuffs on him and said, oh, no, 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 no. I wasn't really serious about that. You'll never get rid of your troubles until you allow the Holy Spirit to work. He is stronger than your habits. He is stronger than your passions. He can cleanse the filth of your evil nature. He can make and keep every single one of us pure on the inside. And I pray that God would grant us the strength and the humility to allow the Holy Spirit to work a change in us so that we can be counted among those believers who are pure on heart, as is mentioned here in Matthew 5, verse 8. I pray that we'd allow him the access into the deepest resources of our soul and spirit so that he might do all the necessary cleansing so that we might truly begin to see God in all of his glory. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to come before you, Lord, and see how clearly you have made yourself known to us. And Lord, I find this incredibly encouraging that you say to those believers who are pure in heart that they shall see you. And Lord, we know that, that there is significant amount of work that needs to be done within us. Every single one of us, I'm sure, would admit that we're far from perfect, that there are so many things on the inside that need to change. And Lord, even though we've done some things on the outside to try and bring about that change, it's not really going to actually take an effect unless we allow the Holy Spirit to get to work within us. Lord, help us to yield everything over to him as we seek, Lord, to cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of the soul and spirit. I pray, Lord, that he would work a change in us. As painful as it may be, it is necessary. And Lord, it is what is pleasing to you. So Lord, let us do what's necessary. And knowing that through the pain and through the struggle of letting go of old habits and changing our desires into what you would have us to follow after, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified by the way that we live our lives. Thank you for your patience and long-suffering toward us. Lord, give us the courage and the boldness to do as what we're told and to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance every single day. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.